midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. It's Why I Believe the Resurrection of Jesus, Part 2. Now, today should be the juicier episode of, of these because we are going to get into the counter-arguments or like the alternate theories of Jesus' resurrection. Last week, I gave the minimal historical facts on which I base my belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, stop right now. Go listen to that one first. That will be... That will make things a lot easier on yourself. Now, if you are a Christian, let's be sympathetic to those who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We are asking them to believe a man was killed, buried, and rose back to life three days later. So I grew up hearing this at home, church, school, so it's a little easier to accept as a child, but imagine hearing this for the first time as an adult. It is a big pill to swallow. So, you know, also... you know, as a Christian, and I'm speaking to non-believers here, you know, Christians believe that God works inside of us to sort of open our eyes to the truth. And so, you know, thank you for listening to this. And that's that's my prayer is that God would, would use this podcast to sort of show you, okay, there are good reasons, but ultimately Christians would, would agree that God essentially is kind of working a miracle inside of your, you know, spiritual heart, basically. And so I'm, I am kind of ignoring that aspect of it. I'm just kind of laying out why I believe what I believe. The Bible instructs Christians to be ready to give reasons for the hope that is in us. That's 1 Peter 3.15. And so for these resurrection episodes, here's my main point. Sure, there will always be room for doubters of the resurrection. But for me, I believe God exists and therefore miracles are a possibility. I also believe that you know only the with only the basic minimal facts it is very reasonable to believe that Jesus actually appeared in a resurrected body to individuals and to groups and then that's that's ignoring the empty tomb so I so I think you know for me personally I believe that the gospel accounts um provide and, and again I'm I'm stepping aside I believe they're the inspired word of God but even from just a historical point of view I believe there's enough there to to believe that the tomb was found empty. And so when you add the empty tomb to the basic minimal facts of of Jesus resurrection that I mentioned in last episode, you know, I think there are very very good reasons to believe that the the resurrection occurred because it's, you know, in my mind, and I know I'm biased, but <laughs> it's the only way to kind of explain all of the data. So hopefully you'll see that as we go through the episode today. Now you can definitely say, you know, well, Bear, you're just you're looking at all this evidence, wanting a particular result, and that's why you believe it, and that's fair to say, and I, I probably am. Uh, but is my belief reasonable based on the historical data? That's that's what I'm trying to get across here. I'm, I'm showing why I believe what I believe. So what you can't do is just accuse me of just believing in something without any good reason to do so. And so that's that's the purpose here. Hopefully you'll see that there are good reasons for Christians to believe that the resurrection was an a historical event. Now, today's outline is pretty simple. I'm going to list several alternate theories and then sort of give uh, 
you know, tackle them one by one on why I believe they don't hold up. And a lot of these will be just kind of quick responses. And so hopefully it'll move pretty fast for you. I am going to spend some some a decent amount of time on the hallucination theories, which I think are kind of a that's that's probably one of the main uh, theories that people will go to, you know, in today's time. Then I will give some reasons why, despite the evidence, people still do not believe in the resurrection. Now, because this topic is so important, there have been tons of alternate theories proposed over the last 2000 years, because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then this requires an adjustment in your belief system. So it's no wonder that tons of people are opposed to the resurrection, because if it's true, then you should be a Christian. So today, uh, you know, we've got 2,000 years of history behind us, so we are only scratching the surface of a lot of these you know, different uh, hypotheses. But if you're interested in one particular or just more information, I would encourage you to listen to debates. Debates are a really good way to learn both sides of the argument. And, you know, the, the problem with speeches or sermons, and yes, even a podcast like this one, the problem is that you are hearing from a biased person and everybody is biased. And so, you know, with debates, you have two experts who disagree with one another, but if, you know, they can they can counter each other right there. Now, if you're thinking, to, you know, well, I don't, I, you know, don't want to listen to debates and you're thinking of the presidential debates, that is not a debate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a de- formal debates are timed. Everybody gets an equal amount of time. And it's it's typically done in a respectful respectful environment. Uh, they're not interrupting one another, constantly trying to get these little one-liner zingers. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's a lot different than a presidential debate. So if if that's the only debate that you've ever listened to, then that's not what I'm talking about. So I uh, mentioned we are going to cover a lot of stuff today at sort of a surface level. So please email me if you want more information. I can definitely provide that. And, uh, and you can connect with me in a few ways, bearchristianity at gmail.com or on Instagram at the real bear Martin. You can also send in questions for our next little part of the show called A Bear in the Woods. This week's question is by a listener. Here it is. Bear, if you were guaranteed success, what would you attempt to do? Well, from a, uh, from a host of Bear Christianity standpoint, I would attempt to you know, if I was guaranteed success, well, how about convincing everyone Christianity is true? That would <laughs> that would be great. Um, you know, it, there's other things like a cure for cancer or a cure for COVID, you know. But from a personal kind of selfish standpoint, I would want to play Major League Baseball. I grew up playing a ton of baseball, and I just, you know, that's that was always sort of a dream as a kid. And so I would want to play Major League Baseball. My favorite team's the Braves, and so I would want to... Uh, help the Braves win a World Series, maybe like hit like a walk-off home run or something. But then as I was thinking about that, I started wondering, you know, would it be special if I knew that I was going to be successful? You know, if I was guaranteed success. And so does the struggle and the unknown make success feel like success? And this bear just wandered way too deep in the woods. Now, some odds and ends before we really get going. Resurrection implies a body. So here's a a Bears book recommends for you. It's by N.T. Wright. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's a massive book, by the way. But in the the book, Wright examines biblical and non-biblical sources 
during the time of Jesus and investigates what people at that time believed about the afterlife. And so he's, he also spends a lot of time showing what, the, what people meant by the word resurrection. And the definition he emphasizes over and over again in the book is resurrection means bodily life after life after death. Okay, life after life after death. So here's how it works. When you die, your spirit lives on and your physical body is dead. And so N.T. Wright calls that the, the life after death. Okay, the, and so that's sort of like the intermediate state. And so by resurrection being the life after life after death is when after this intermediate phase, the spirit is reunited with a resurrected body. So the resurrected body is a physical body with similarities and differences to the previous physical body. And so that's, that's what uh, resurrection means. And, and N.T. Wright goes through, uh, spends a lot of time just kind of laying out that in the New Testament, when the word resurrection is used, it's in the Greek, it's anastasis. When that's used, people, it was implying a physical body. That's really important. Now, for the purposes of my uh, argument on these minimal facts for believing the resurrection, I'm not even needing the Bible to be considered the inspired Word of God. I believe that it is, but my argument for the resurrection is not some sort of circular argument where I'm like, well, the Bible's the Word of God, the Bible said Jesus was resurrected from the dead, therefore it's true. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just simply saying the Bible can be used as a historical source, and a, a very good case can be built on that for the res- for believing the resurrection. And so my case is built on 1 Corinthians 15 and and some, uh, there's a creed there that that Paul mentions and then also Galatians 1 and 2 has some historical background uh, that helps us date that creed. So that's all in the last episode. So that's really all I need is the is Paul and these these letters. There are seven uh undisputed letters of Paul, meaning that even critical scholars believe Paul himself wrote these letters. And so this is very, uh, this is probably the most solid from, from a critical standpoint, this is the most solid, uh, most reliable part of the New Testament are these seven undisputed letters of Paul. And remember that the discoveries for New Testament manuscripts are earlier to the original and more numerous by far than any other writings from ancient times. Now, once people start making objections and use other parts of the Bible, then obviously I have to appeal to other parts of the New Testament to sort of counter those arguments. So be on the lookout when you're, when you're listening to debates and stuff like this, be on the lookout for critics who will pick certain parts of the Bible to make their point, but then ignore all the surrounding information. This happens a lot. I started noticing this. This happens a ton as I was listening to debates on the resurrection. Um, so here, here's an example. In John 20, Mary Magdalene temporarily mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And so critics of the resurrection will say, well, you know, all the followers of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, they, they were just so grieved by his death that they were just wanting to see Jesus so bad that she mistook the gardener and she just sort of had like a little illusion there that the gardener was actually Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus. Okay, let's suppose that she must, you know, that that's correct. Well, if they go less than 10 verses earlier, we have Mary Magdalene noticing that the tomb is empty. 
And so again, you know, but they don't, but critics won't want to give us the empty tomb. And so they, they'll go in, they say, oh, you know, Mary Magdalene saw the gardener. That's, that's what happened there. But then they will ignore verses that are all around that about the empty tomb. I mean, if Mary mistook the gardener for Jesus and then went and told the disciples and, and other people, you know, he has, he's risen from the dead, they could be like, well, Mary, just, you know, go look at the tomb. He's, he's not alive, right? There's his body right there. But the tomb is empty. So you can't just go in and pick apart a, you know, one little verse that you want to use for your argument and then ignore the rest of it. When I talk about why I'm not a Muslim, there is a very famous Muslim teacher named Zakir Naik, and he has this presentation where he claims that he can use the Bible alone to prove that Jesus did not die on the cross, because that's what Muslims believe, because the Quran tells them so, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. But what Zakir Naik does is he goes in and he picks apart little verses here and there uh, to make his little presentation, but he's ignoring massive you know, very clear parts of the Bible. But to an audience who is not familiar with the Bible, it sounds very convincing. So be aware of that, that when people go to the Bible and use it for their little, you know, little piece of data that they want, look at the surrounding text and say, well, if you can use that, why can't you, why can't you accept a verse, you know, just a few verses later? All right, let's lay them out. Here are the common objections to the resurrection. It's not all of them, but it's a lot of them. All right. The first one, Jesus wasn't even a real person. Christianity is a myth made up by men and fashioned after other mythological stories. From a serious historian standpoint, the idea of Jesus of Nazareth um, as not existing is just laughable. John Dominic Crossan is not a believer, but he is a New Testament scholar, you know, and and so he says this, there's a, a famous quote by him. He says, Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So there is tons of evidence that Jesus actually existed. The the next one, Jesus' resurrection is spiritual only. The disciples found a new meaning to life when they reflected on the life of Jesus, their great teacher. And in a spiritual way, Jesus was raised from the dead in their hearts. Now that is real flowery, flowery to think about, But let me refer you back to the book I mentioned by N.T. Wright. Resurrection implies a physical body. And so, yes, there are spiritual lessons that that Paul teaches, you know, and and uses resurrection type language. But that's not all of what he meant. There there is also a physical body. Jesus actually appeared in a physical body. Um, Along the same line, some people will deny the appearances that are mentioned in this 1 Corinthians 15 creed. They'll say that they were just visions or hallucinations. Um, but not actual encounters with Jesus in a physical body. We're going to talk about this a lot more in just a second, but Paul uses this creed in a chapter where he is defending the concept of the physical resurrection of the dead. And so just, again, just read the creed in the context of Paul's argument, and you'll see that he's talking about physical resurrection. The next one, the swoon theory. This, is, this has lots of different variations, but basically here's the theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He swooned. He, he acted like he was dead. Uh, maybe he took like a, a potion um, or he passed out simply from the, you know, from the beatings and stuff like that. So he passed out. He appeared to be dead, but he wasn't actually dead. Now, this just ignores a lot of stuff we know about Roman crucifixion. When you went, when you were sentenced to the cross, you were there to die. 
And in crucifixion, you suffocate. So you're hanging there and you can't breathe. So you have to hoist yourself up in order to take a breath. And so, you know, what if a, if a man is just hanging low on the cross for you know, 15, 20 minutes and hasn't moved, I mean, he's dead because he's not breathing. You can't breathe in that position. And so what they would do, they, they would often break the legs in order to kill the people quicker. Um, also, you're, you know, with the crucifixion, they always beat you before they put you on the cross because it made it more painful. So they, they, would, they would scar up your back and whip you and so that it was very painful. So imagine being on a splintery, you know, board and then having to hoist yourself up, scraping along that wood in order to breathe every time. I mean, it just, it was, it was gruesome. Also, there are non-biblical reports that during a crucifixion, during the whipping beforehand, sometimes you could see the internal organs because the skin was so ripped away from all the whipping. So it was a brutal, brutal process. So let's say that Jesus passed out and he wasn't really dead. Well, he's been beat, you know, nearly to death, tons of blood loss. Then he's laid in a, in a tomb when the stones rolled over it, no water, no medical care or anything like that. I mean, he, he's not just going to get up and start walking around town. So the swoon theory does not hold up. Here's the next one. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written decades after Jesus, and they just contain legends and stories that you know, we can't really trust them as being reliable. It is true that most scholars believe that the four Gospels were written, and th- these, vi- these dates will vary, so there are other theories, but roughly between 60 to 100 A.D. Uh, but remember, I don't actually need the Gospel accounts to to lay out these minimal historical facts. I just use 1 Corinthians and Galatians, and those are written earlier than the four Gospels. Also, in this 1 Corinthians Creed, I laid out last time how we have a, a direct line. We have Peter giving the creed, or con- at least confirming the truth of that creed to Paul. Peter to Paul. We don't have this, you know, often the telephone game illustration is used, where you have this, this message, this oral tradition that's passed down by thousands of people, and then, you know, then the New Testament writer's at the very end of the line, and he gets this scrambled up, jumbled up mess of a message. No, we just have Peter to Paul. It, it's very simple. Another uh, um, theory uh, that denies the resurrection, people will say, well, there's contradicting accounts of the empty tomb. So the Gospels can't be reliable because, you know, in one Gospel, it's a few women that go to the tomb, and they, there's different numbers of women, and Jesus says, meet me in Galilee in one, and meet me in Jerusalem in the other. And I'll admit, there are some differences there. A, a book that covers this is by Dr. Mike Lacona, and it's called Why Are There Differences in the Gospel? So if you're interested in more information on that, check it out. Um, but so, so yes, there are, and I'll say contradictions in air quotes, because, you know, there, there's explanations for these. But what do, so they, so here's an example of the Mary Magdalene thing I mentioned earlier. What are the critics doing? They're going in there and they're saying, look at all these contradictions. But what they're ignoring are the two very basic facts that all four gospels agree on. One, the tomb was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So we have a specific tomb that's mentioned and agreed upon in all four Gospels. And also, that tomb was found empty. Those are the two just basic you know, facts that are, that are agreed on in, in all four Gospels. And so critics will ignore those basic facts, and they just want to look at you know, little, the contradictions in order to try to make their argument. Now, also in the Gospels, I mean, why are women the primary witnesses? 
if you were just making up a story in that culture, sorry to offend you, ladies, but you would never use women as your primary witnesses, the the first witnesses, because women could not even speak in the court of law as a witness. They, their testimony was considered unreliable. And so if you're making up the story, you wouldn't put women as being the first ones to discover the empty tomb. In fact, think about Paul's creed. Here's my little, here's a little nugget for you. In the early church creed, that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15, the women are not listed as witnesses. And it could be because they were trying to get, the, the early church was trying to get the most important facts about the resurrection in this creed. And the, they were just kind of passed over the testimony of the women because of the culture of that day. Women's testimony was not considered reliable. Now, the only accounts we have from history of what people say about the empty tomb are reasons that the tomb is empty. So notice that all of them, all historical accounts, biblical and non-biblical, they assume an empty tomb. So the disciples stole the body, the gardener moved the body, Jesus used drugs or magic on the cross to fake his death. All of them assume an empty tomb. We have zero historical sources that, that say, you know, actually the Christians were claiming Jesus was risen from the dead, but the, you know, Jewish authorities or Roman soldiers went and they, you know, they found, they, they confirmed that Jesus was still in the tomb. We have none of that. And so the arguments against the empty tomb are just basically the critics are saying, well, I just don't believe it because there's just, I just don't believe there's enough evidence there. All right. It's not that they have counter evidence. All right. Here's, here's a big one. The people who saw Jesus were hallucinating. All right. Now, Joseph Bergeron is a medical doctor. He works with patients who suffer from neurological conditions like strokes and, and traumatic injuries. He decided to research the resurrection. He is a Christian, and he ended up doing a lot of research into the medical reliability of this hallucination hypothesis. There's an article that I'll link in the episode notes with a lot more details, so we're just kind of hitting some highlights here. But uh, here's a quote from the article. Psychiatric hypotheses regarding the disciples' encounters with the resurrected Jesus include a few varieties, such as hallucinations, conversion disorder, and bereavement-related visions. These hypotheses, however, are primarily proposed by non-medical writers and found in debates or theological books by New Testament scholars rather than being subjected to a more appropriate, specialized medical readership. As a result, the analysis of potential medical causes for these hallucinatory symptoms is generally flawed and often absent. Basically, he's saying this, people that make this argument that, oh, the disciples were just hallucinating, they are not people that have medical knowledge about what causes hallucinations or, or other you know, disorders that, where, you, where you see visions. So they know that, oh, you know, some people hallucinate, so that must have been what happened. But what he's saying is that the symptoms from a medical standpoint do not add up. PubMed is a database which allows doctors and medical researchers to find peer-reviewed journal articles about you know, any topic of interest. So if there's been an article written on it, It'll be in PubMed, and and I'm very familiar with that. Any any healthcare professionals familiar with PubMed because we use that a lot. Like I use it a ton in optometry school as you're writing papers on different conditions and things like that. Dr. Bergeron was unable to find any peer-reviewed articles which support the claims that there were, that the disciples had this sort of hallucinatory experience, and so and and the reason is because the symptoms do not add up. Doctors, we are trained to think like this. When I walk in and I'm talking, you know, a, a patient's in my office with, a, with an issue, 
I walk in, I talk with the patient, I look at test results, I ask further questions. And so the whole time I have this you know, imaginary list in my mind of what we call differential diagnoses, so possible things it could be. And as I'm you know, looking at test results and those sorts of things, I'm basically crossing off things on that list and narrowing it down. And hopefully we can narrow it down to one condition that, that kind of fits all the, the data that we have. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we have a couple and we have to make the best guess, essentially, uh, based on what we know. And so that's the way doctors think. And so with, with these hallucination hypotheses, the symptoms get crossed, you know, the symptoms or, or what we know from history, it, where it's, we can easily cross off these theories. So first, hallucinations. Hallucinations require a diagnosis. They don't just happen in a healthy mind. And so you can't just say, oh, it must have been a hallucination because they were grieving Jesus' death. If, if the grieving Jesus' death is the reason, then that is not a hallucination. It is a bereavement-related vision, which we're going to talk about in a second. So hallucinations are things that you know either are drug-induced or people have some sort of um, psychotic problem, okay? Here's a quote from Dr. Bergeron. Persons suffering from psychosis in Jesus' time, not having the benefit of modern medical treatment, might well be considered lunatics or demon-possessed. They would be unlikely candidates to organize as a group and implement the rapid and historic widespread expansion of the Christian religion during the first century. And also, people who have these hallucinations, they do not actually believe that the hallucination was real. So sure, in the moment, they may feel like they have snakes crawling all over them and they're freaking out. But once they settle down and they're in their right mind, they're, they are not convinced that it was real. Whereas the disciples were, they were convinced that they really saw the risen Jesus and it completely changed the way they lived their life and, and what they did. Also, hallucinations are private experiences. They're like dreams. You can't just you know jump into someone else's dream. Uh, the great theologian and folk singer, Bob Dylan, he did get this one wrong when he said, I'll let you be in my dream if I can be in yours. <laughs> so you, you can't just say, hey, I'm having a great dream over here, or this is a really cool hallucination. Come on in here with me and we can experience the same thing. No, hallucinations are private. And so none of the group appearances are explained in this. And from what I've come across, it seems like, and I could be wrong about this, but it seems like there's two pieces of evidence that most critics just try really hard to get rid of, and that's the empty tomb and these group appearances by the resurrected Jesus, because it's the group appearances which really do away with any sort of hallucination hypothesis. And so, the, But the only way to doubt the group appearances and to get rid of them is just to get rid of everything. You know, so I, I guess, you know, a critic could say, well, I don't believe Paul is reporting accurately. I don't believe, you know, any of it. Well, that's fine. You know, you know that's, I guess that's their right to have that opinion. Uh, but if you do that, then you also have to get rid of a lot of other things in history because we, we have older manuscripts for the New Testament than anything else. Uh, so, I mean, you can just say, I don't trust Paul. And I guess that's okay. Um, but it, you, you got to get rid of all of it or take all of it, because it's all right there, packed into the same little creed. And Paul says, you know, go check it out for yourself. It's kind of this this tone of, you know, you probably already know this, or this is common knowledge, and these people are still alive, so go go check it out for yourself. And so, I, you know, I just don't think Paul is lying about the group appearances or making them up, and but then being truthful about his own, you know, appearance and, and conversion. 
another way that critics will try to get around the group appearances is by, re- by relating them to these mass hysteria type events. The most popular one is called the Miracle of the Sun in Fatima, Portugal in 1917. These three children claim to see the Virgin Mary, and this kind of created a stir in town. And so each month the Virgin Mary would appear to them, and more and more people started to go with the children and, and try to see the Virgin Mary themselves. They never did. But on one occasion, there was several thousand people uh, all gathered together, and a lot of them reported that the sun started doing lots of weird things in the sky. And so th- this, and, and again, this could have been a miracle. I don't know. I'm not an expert on it. But this is not the same as a, a group of disciples having a conversation with what they believed was the resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, the, the son is not having a, is not talking to the people and none of the people had a conversation with the Virgin Mary, except what these three children, they said that they saw the Virgin Mary. Um, so this is not really comparable. Um, another one, you know, people will see these group apparitions, like sometimes you'll have a crowd of people and they'll all say that, I don't know why it's the Virgin Mary every time, but they see like the Virgin Mary in this stone or, you know, one lady, when I was researching this a little more, she said she saw the Virgin Mary in her cinnamon roll and started showing it to people who also saw the Virgin Mary. So, I mean, there's stuff like that that happens, but that is not comparable to a group of disciples having a conversation with resurrected Jesus. Another sort of vision-related theory is that Paul, see, they got to do something different with Paul because Paul's not a follower of Jesus. He's an enemy of Christianity, so he wouldn't be grieving Jesus' death. And so they've got to have a different theory for why Paul saw his vision. And some people will say conversion disorder. So they'll say, you know, Paul had this inner turmoil or guilt, and he actually suffered from a conversion disorder when he saw the, when he had the vision of Jesus. Now, conversion here has nothing to do with religious conversion. Conversion disorder, it was coined by Freud, where the subconscious is conflicted, and that conflict converts to a neurologic or physical symptom. And so this conversion disorder can occur after like a, a bad psychological trauma. So an example Bergeron uses is a, a mother who goes blind after seeing her own child drown. Now, often conversion disorder is temporary. And so the, um, the blindness or the, the different neurological or physical symptoms reside. Uh, and also patients are typically indifferent about their condition. So it's like, it's called, this is called, this phenomenon is called label indifference. And this hardly describes Paul. I mean, he, this changed his life. He was not indifferent about it, but people with this conversion disorder and they have this label indifference, it's like they're blind, but they don't really care that they're blind. Sort of a, sort of a weird thing. Also notice conversion disorder causes the loss of one of the senses. So Paul did lose his sight temporarily when he saw the risen Jesus. And so, you know, I think people will, they read that and they go, oh, it must have been a conversion disorder. The problem is that now you have two, you have him losing sight, but also hallucinating the risen Jesus. So you have all these psychological oddities that are, that are rare, and then they're happening simultaneously. And Bergeron says this ab- about the conversion disorder theory. It should also be noted that hallucinations are not part of the diagnostic criteria or clinical features of conversion disorder. For Paul to have experienced a conversion disorder and a hallucination simultaneously would be doubly atypical and inconsistent with current psychiatric understanding of conversion disorder. So again, the symptoms just don't add up. The last one are these bereavement-related visions or bereavement hallucinations. 
And so these definitely can occur after the loss of a loved one. The most common is from a spouse. And the longer you're married, the more likely that you'll have these bereavement-related uh, hallucinations. The most, uh, the most common one is not even a vision. It is more of a feeling of closeness. But the visual hallucinations are possible. However, the hallucinations do not talk to, you know, back to the person having the hallucination. It's just, they just see a vision of their loved one. Uh, also, the, the people who have these bereavement vision-related symptoms, they don't believe that that hallucination is real. They don't actually believe that their loved one has come back from the dead. They, it's, they realize it's a hallucination. And often they keep them private. They, you know, in a big study on bereavement hallucinations, the, the people in the study had never told anyone about them until the study, and they, they told the investigators, you know, or the uh, researchers. So that, you know, that does away with the bereavement hallucinations because not only did they see the risen Jesus, but it completely changed their life. They were, it wasn't like, oh, we must just be seeing things. Uh, and also for all of these people to have a bereavement hallucination also doesn't add up with the symptoms. So here's an interesting question. We've, we've covered a lot of different theories. Here's an interesting question for the person who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Why is there no consensus theory as to what happened during Jesus' resurrection? You know, the, none of the critics can agree. None of their theories fit all these little basic facts about what happened. And so the best they the best they have is to, you know, just say, well, it was some sort of strange vision thing, something something weird happened or we don't have all the information that we need or whatever. But basically what's happening there is in faith they believe that an explanation will be discovered eventually. As our scientific knowledge expands, eventually we'll discover a, a very natural explanation for all of the events that took place. Everybody believes or has faith in something. That's, that's the point that I want to make there. Now, you may be asking, Bear, if the evidence is so good, why don't more people believe? I mean, why do we have all these scholars that are experts in the field and they know all the evidence, why don't they believe? Why do they still doubt? And, and, and then also, why have some people left Christianity? Well, first off, these, you know, these critical scholars, many of them, their presuppositions do not allow for a miracle. So if they're atheist, then a miracle just cannot happen. God does not exist and a miracle cannot happen. They don't even consider it. And so a, a common, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what you'll hear a lot from atheists, is they'll basically say a miracle is the least likely possibility. So therefore, any natural explanation, no matter how flawed, no matter how crazy, it's got to be preferred before even considering a miracle. So they just, from the very beginning, they write it off. Miracles can't happen. People don't rise from the dead. And so it just can't happen. Now, this, this is assuming, I mentioned that they have presuppositions. This is assuming that God does not exist, and it assumes that there's nothing outside of the natural world. But what happens to the probability that the resurrection did happen if God exists? If miracles are possible, then the probability that Jesus was raised from the dead versus all these other theories, the probability skyrockets because it's the only thing that explains all of the historical data. So I would ask, you know, those critics, what if your base assumptions are wrong? What if you're wrong about there is no God and miracles can't happen? 
you know, what does that do to the probability that Jesus was raised from the dead? And then another reason people don't believe is because they just say, well, yeah, we, ha- we have some evidence here, uh, but, you know, if, if this was so important, if this was so critical, why would God not give us more evidence? And an important question for that is, you know, what evidence would you need to change your mind about the resurrection? Because if you, if you, again, if you do not believe in miracles and do not believe in God, then I could show you a video of Jesus dying on the cross, you know, and, and check his pulse. And, you know, that I could show you his hook him up to, you know, a hospital vital signs and all that stuff, show you he's dead and then show you a video of him walking out of the tomb and, and alive in a resurrected body. And if you don't believe miracles can happen, you're just going to say, well, there's got to be an explanation for it. I don't know what it is, but it's not a miracle, right? So no evidence is really ever going to be enough for these people. And then lastly, a little soapbox of mine. You know, why do people leave Christianity? If the evidence, you know, Barry, you're saying all this evidence is so good and, it, you know, it's reasonable to believe that. But why do people leave Christianity and again, this is, a, this is an issue for me. I, I think we are doing a poor job educating our children and middle schoolers and high schoolers about the, the historicity of Christianity. And so if we just tell them, you know, believe the Bible, you know, that's God's word. Just believe it. Don't, you know, um, and we just ignore how we got the Bible. We, you know, the Bible didn't just float down from heaven with page numbers and chapter headings and everything. There was a process, and that's important to understand. Uh, there's many things about Christianity where there, we have good reasons to believe in Christianity. And so we don't have all the answers, but you can't just say, well, we don't have the, all the answers. We just have to believe. And, and this assumes that we don't really have any good reasons to believe. We're just believing for believing's sake. You know, sure, Christians don't have all the answers, but neither do atheists, neither do, does any other religion. We all have faith in something. And so sometimes I think kids that grow up in a, in a Christian home like mine, if they're just taught, you know, believe the Bible, it's true, you just have to believe it. Don't, don't worry about all the other details. When they get to college and they run into a professor who doesn't believe the Bible, then their, their world is just rocked. And so I hope that, you know, one of the purposes for starting this podcast is I hope to leave a legacy for my kids. My kids are, are very young right now. A lot of these deeper concepts they won't understand yet. But I hope to leave a legacy where they can go back and listen to these and know that their dad has a good reason for believing what he believes. In our closing verse here, I want to talk about Thomas, doubting Thomas. And so he's one of, our, one of the favorite you know, characters of, of the resurrection stories in the gospel. Uh, the reason we call him doubting Thomas is because Jesus appeared to a group of disciples, and, but Thomas wasn't with them the first time. And so they're trying to tell Thomas what happened and Thomas says, oh, you know, I, that's just, you know, unbelievable. Literally, I, I just can't believe it. And, uh, and then Jesus appears again, and Thomas is with the group. And Jesus says to Thomas, this is in uh, John 20, starting in verse 27. Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas just called Jesus God. 
And you, so you may be thinking, I thought God was God. Why is Thomas calling Jesus God? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But before I leave, I want you to hear what Jesus says in the very next verse. So after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he's speaking to Jesus there, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.